Well, greetings and salutations once again from the great state of Alabama. Beautiful afternoon. Maybe some thunderstorms might brew up here in a little bit, but hope everybody had a good opportunity to get out and enjoy this uh, beautiful day today. So, as always, today we're going we're to talk about uh, a little bit S- SBC and the convention that's coming up here in June and the issues in particular with... Uh, the expulsion, to, for back of, lack of a better way to put it, of uh, Saddleback Church plus about four others, and Rick Warren's uh, <clears throat> attempt to appeal that, which is coming up in set, or June the 11th is when the convention begins. I think outright probably the 13th and 14th is the majority of it, but it begins on the 11th. So we'll talk a little bit about that, and then I thought we'd speak just a little bit about... Uh, Andy Stanley again. He's uh, got a new sermon series come out. I've listened to the first two sermons uh, that have been available. The, it, it is it is uh, new, so his next sermon will come out this Sunday, I presume, on it, and it's called Fundamental List. So it's a play on words, fundamental and list, and the idea is going back to a fundamental list of what is required of us to be a follower of Jesus Christ. What things are required or essential is the premise of his series and what things, I don't know that he'll get into what things are not, but primarily uh, listing what is fundamental. All right, and so to start with, uh, oh, I was going to tell you, don't forget, uh, we'll put this up on uh, YouTube, going to put it up on Rumble, and it's always on the podcast, uh, RK Ministries podcast. You can find that wherever podcasts are available. So go to uh, YouTube, like and subscribe and share. Uh, go to Rumble, like and subscribe and share. And then go find the podcast and subscribe, like and share uh, as well. <clears throat> and if you are so inclined to uh, support what we're doing financially, there is a link on the uh, podcast podcast. Page. If you will look up the podcast page, uh, Anchor by Podcast, Anchor, uh, I think it's Podcast Spotify, Ronnie Knight or something like that. You can probably Google it and find it. <laughs> and uh, there's a link on there you can support if you want to. All right. So starting with Southern Baptist Convention, Saddleback, Rick Warren. Uh, as if you're Southern Baptist and you've been keeping up with it, you know that. Uh, a year or so ago, I think it was year before last, uh, there were some issues that came up. A couple things. The one was the issue of abuse in the Southern Baptist Convention, which is being dealt with. And again, not everyone is agreement on how that's being handled, or at least the entities that they are using to help handle those situations and <clears throat> and uh, how we're going about it. So I'm sure that'll be a big topic this year again. And then last year, I wasn't able to go last year. I went year for, before last was in Tennessee. Last year, uh, it was in Anaheim, California. So obviously, wasn't able to make that journey to Anaheim, California. And so the issue came up about um, women being ordained as pastors, and particularly surrounding uh, Saddleback Church, who had ordained, I think, previous to last year they had ordained several women as pastors 
and uh, now Rick Warren has he's pastor emeritus there, so in essence retired, and they have a husband wife pastor team <clears throat> at Saddleback, and so that issue came up, and obviously Rick Warren was there last year because it was in California. And he, he had the opportunity to speak to that issue, plus others had the opportunity to speak to the issue and what it meant to, what the word pastor meant. And there was a big discussion, or I say a big discussion, there was a very limited discussion about the Baptist faith and message on the floor. And that's really one of the problems with the Southern Baptist Convention and the, and the way things are done. It, it's not that they're done necessarily out of order. They do their best to maintain order in some semblance to what we would understand as Robert's rules of order. But <clears throat> it is just so big that it is very hard to, to come to the floor and have your voice be heard on an issue. And so very few people actually get their voice heard on an issue. And the only way, only other way you get your voice heard is to vote yay or nay <clears throat> on whatever motions or amendments are, are brought up. So that's one of the discouraging things about it is that you really don't have a voice other than your, your vote. So you, you can't give opinion as readily as you might want to on the, on the floor during the convention. But anyway, uh, that uh, I think is what it is. And so they had that debate, and then the, I think it's, I don't know if it's credentials committee or one of the committees decided that, hey, we need to spend a year uh, determining what the word pastor meant, and that got under the, under the skin, for lack of a better way to put it, of some of the folks who were actually, who actually uh, helped form the, the 2000 Baptist Faith and Message, uh, namely uh, Al Moeller, who got up and did have an opportunity to speak about what they understood pastor to mean in that, um, in that convention last year. But anyway, uh, this year, uh, the executive committee prior to the convention has had already determined that Saddleback, to use Southern Baptist language, was no longer in uh, friendly fellowship with the Southern Baptist Convention. And that's another issue of contention. What does it mean to be friendly in friendly fellowship with the Southern Baptist Convention? What does it mean you adhere to the Baptist faith and message? Or do you just loosely adhere to it and we give you some wiggle room on things? So that's, that's another debate within the debate, I guess. But anyway, they the executive committee had already decided to, um, to unassociate with uh, Saddleback Baptist Church plus four, I think it's four other churches that had the same issue. And so now by, by the procedure of the Southern Baptist Convention that those churches can appeal that decision by the exec executive committee. And they are, and I know Rick Warren is going to be the spokesperson at least for Saddleback, if not for all, all four, five of the churches that I think were disassociated and so we're going to have that debate and and here's the thing my concern as a southern baptist we need to be praying for this about this because in uh, i think I, I i posted the article uh of about rick warren uh challenging this motion this this decision and there he gives five reasons why he's going to do that so on my facebook you can go find that article and read it and but my thoughts were on this article this is going to determine how this vote goes is going to determine 
whether or not the Southern Baptist Convention is in friendly fellowship with some of its churches or not. Uh, and do we have do we have a confession of faith that we hold to? Is our confession of faith just a piece of paper that is there to say, hey, yeah, you got a profession of faith, but it really doesn't mean anything because you can believe pretty much whatever you want to and still be associated with us as long as you give to the cooperative program and you fund uh, the colleges and you fund the mission works that we do abroad and in the state. And that's one of the arguments that uh, Rick Warren, I think, is going to use is, hey, look, look at how much good we do in the sense of missions. Uh, and so, but but do we not do we not stand for the truth of scripture just so we can cooperate together and get more money to send out missionaries who may not necessarily teach properly the truth of scripture i get it we 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 are called to to share the gospel and and point people to christ and trust god to save them but there is also uh, another ele element of evangelism and that's discipleship because if you look at the great commission the great commission is says make disciples the only verb in that sentence is is to make disciples the rest are participles sharing with us how it is we go about doing those things evangelism is one of them um, but teaching people to observe all things that the Lord has taught us is another aspect of making disciples and we ought to stand on sound doctrine I think Jesus had a lot to say about that which we'll talk about in a minute <clears throat> with Andy Stanley but anyway just be praying for that because at some point there's going to be a time when uh, churches who are Southern Baptists are going to have to make a decision either we continue to fund uh, a convention that no longer adheres to sound biblical doctrine that's drifting away or you know back in the beginning of andy stanley his dad was one of the i think uh, leaders or part of the leadership that brought back this conservative resurgence um uh, many years ago in the southern baptist convention when it would, had began to lean left uh and move away what we consider to be biblical orthodoxy in some ways so is is that is that an option anymore? Because if you look at the leadership right now, a lot of not all of them, but there are a great many of them who, if they're not full on woke, but they have catered to uh, the wokeness of our society to some degree. And so you just got to look at what's going on, and you'll have to you know churches will have to make their own decision uh, about that. <clears throat> and so. Anyway, just be in prayer for the Southern Baptist Convention and the decisions that are made up there in June that uh, God's will uh, will be done. And so that leads us now to uh, your favorite preacher and mine, Andy Stanley. And again, you know, I was thinking about this, and I've done thing, uh, a couple things on Andy Stanley before. And, and I don't know Andy Stanley personally, obviously. Uh, he, he is, the, you know, obviously the son of uh, Charles Stanley, who just recently passed away, <clears throat> who many people uh, adored, and rightly so. And, you know, Andy Stanley is a, a phenomenal communicator. If you listen to his sermons and read his books, phenomenal communicator. Probably better communicator than I can ever hope to be. Um, and so, you know, I, I battle about doing these kinds of things. 
you know, because I'm a nobody from nowhere, right? And uh, Andy Stanley wouldn't know me from Adam's house cat, to use that phrase. And so, <clears throat> you know, why, why would I even bother to do this? Because when I think about Andy Stanley, you know, and the influence that he has on culture, that, that's one of the way, things that uh, drives me to, it, to say something, right? Whether anyone listens or not is another story. And, um, but just the, the, the amount of influence he has on culture and on Christianity and Christians at this moment, because, hey, second largest, um, quote, church in, in America, uh at the moment so he has impacted uh probably more people than i'll ever impact in my lifetime but if someone is impacting people and that someone is um impacting them with doctrine and theology that is in some ways harmful because he's going to talk about harmful stuff in this sermon somewhat harmful then I think we as pastors, those who are the shepherd of our sheep, which hopefully some of our folks at Friendship are listening to this, and, and I know others from other churches listen to this as well. As a shepherd of the sheep, uh, under shepherd anyway, uh, Lord, the Lord, the great shepherd, I, I feel obligated to at least point out some issues. I don't wish any ill will toward andy stanley don't know him i don't know that he has ill intentions i think that andy stanley has the intention of pointing people to jesus christ but i think that andy stanley has given into or given over to some cultural aspects of american christianity in order to advance the gospel in a way that he thinks will be more relevant to the people that he's trying to reach and speak to and so that has led him, I think, and again, I hadn't sat down and talked with him about this, but it seems to me that it has led him to go down this road. Andy Stanley is not a, an ignorant person. He's not a stupid guy. He is very intelligent, very smart gentleman. And whatever he is doing, he is doing it intentionally in the sense that he believes this is the way he needs to go to carry the gospel to the most people in America, at least, if not around the world. I know there are worldwide uh, mission efforts that, that they're involved with, and, and people around the world cooperate with them in, in that. <clears throat> and, but with all that said, there's still some dangers in the theology that he's laying out. You know, and as a person who uh, preaches every Sunday, pre teaches on Wednesday, teaches Sunday school a lot of times, and uh, does podcasts, Bible studies, and all those kinds of things, you know, when you put yourself out there, there there's plenty of things that people can look at me and critique, um, and there are probably some things in there they can say, hey, you know, you're wrong on that big boy. And, you know, there, I'm sure, like Andy Stanley does bring out in this sermon, that well, we're going to all find out one day when we stand before the Lord that we are not right on everything. <clears throat> Contrary to what I like to believe, <laughs> we are not right on everything. There are some things that we are definitely wrong on because at best we see in a mirror dimly, right? But when we see stand before Jesus Christ uh, in, the, in the glorification, in, in the culmination of the age, uh, we will see, we will know even as we are known. So anyway, 
I guess that's my non-apology apology <laughs> up front because uh, I don't know the guy, but I think what he's doing is is dangerous because at best it's going to uh, lead some people to a very anemic understanding of doctrine and theology as it relates to Christianity and God's word. And at worst, it's going to, well, there's two worses, <laughs> worse things. One is going to, uh, like Jesus told the religious leaders of his day, you make people twice the sons of perdition that you are. Uh, it's going to it's going to cause people to have a false sense of security in their faith. And they may be part of those people who stand before Jesus and he says to them, depart from me, I never knew you. And they say, well, we did all of these things in your name. Uh, and Jesus says to them, I never knew you. And, and that's the dangerous part of what he's doing because he'll make the claim in this sermon. He does it in both sermons. Uh, part one and two are out right now. He does it in both sermons. That, hey, here at North Point, th this is about, he says, this is about the, the doctrine, not the do part. Uh, and he says, we talk a lot about do here because just believe, he says, belief doesn't change anything. Doing changes things. <clears throat> and in one sense, he is correct that the doing, the practical application of our redemptive uh, faith of our faith in Christ, the practical application of that in our life um, impacts this world. But the ultimate thing that changes people and causes them to do things uh, in a changed way is the belief. Uh, orthodoxy, orthopraxy, orthodoxy's right belief, orthopraxy's right action. So while in one sense he's right, it is the it is the action that that demonstrates uh, you know, manifest itself in this world. And it's the practical application that impacts people in that way. <clears throat> it is, in fact, our belief that dictates what we do. Right belief, right doctrine, right belief leads to right practice or right doing. So orthodoxy leads to right orthopraxy, leads to right doing right way of acting and living <clears throat> and engaging the world around us. And so you have to have sound theology if you're going to act and live in, in, in this world in a righteous, just way as God requires of us. So anyway, uh, I, I, man, I so wanted to go through both of these uh, sermons. I listened to both of them and I downloaded the transcript from both of them and uh I don't. We don't have time to go through both of them because we will be uh, we will be here into tomorrow if we decide to do to do that. Because you guys know how long winded I am. So I'm going to hit the highlights in the second sermon, and I chose the second sermon because the second sermon I think he brings out in a in a clearer way some of the the implications of the era I think that he is making. And so I thought that would probably be the one to, <clears throat> to go through. And again, 
I'm still learning how to do this stuff. One of these days, I will have the equipment and have the know-how on how to uh, let you listen to this uh, without me having to hold a phone up here uh, and maybe even screen share it and all that kind of stuff. But suffice it to say, today, I do not have uh, that technology or that know-how, so you're just stuck with me going through this this transcript and giving you some timestamps so you can go find them. And you can find this on YouTube if you'll just Google. Google Andy's, or search Andy Stanley and Fundamental List. Uh, you can spell it either way, Fundamental List or Fundamental and then the word List. And it will come up with part one and part two there. And you can you can find it, listen to it, follow, download the transcript, whatever you need to do. So <clears throat> I, I, I took some notes. Uh, multitasking when I was doing other things uh, listening to this and then uh, when I'd hear something I'd say I need to comment on that I'd write down timestamps on my little scratch piece of paper that I got so don't know if I get to all of this stuff the long and short of what I think is happening there, there was a quote <clears throat> that I found if I can find it on my little uh, scratch it's a quote it's not, not necessarily a quote from Andy Stanley so a paraphrase of uh, Andy Stanley's uh, Andy Stanley Andy Stanley's reasoning behind what it is he's doing because if you remember uh, one of the first things that I remember catching my attention as it relates to Andy Stanley is the whole idea of unhitching from the Old Testament and uh, there's a big uproar uh, uh, um, among folks about that idea and in in a sense he's still uh, is following that idea, this under this unhitching from the Old Testament, uh, but that that he used that language, but I think here's what he means because of what we're what he's doing today in these are now currently in these sermons or this sermon series. This what what Andy Stanley is doing. This is an apologetics approach to him because. What he has done is he's looked out into our society and he sees the same thing you and I see. Uh, Matter of fact, I think we talked about it a week or so ago on Theology Thursdays, dealing with the idea of a Christian worldview and dealing with the idea of folks who are leaving the church, you know, between 18 and and 22 or 29, I forget the exact date, but you can go find that, listen to it. But that young adult age, once they get out of high school and move into the college era of their life, they're leaving the church. Uh, Some because they're not saved, some because they're challenged in their faith, whatever. He sees the same thing that every other uh, Christian sees, every other pastor, every other researcher sees as it relates to the issue of people who are leaving the church, not being discipled as young people. And I think what he is seeing is, hey, when they get out into this world, there is this aversion that the world has to the Bible. And that's why he's always harping on this idea of the Bible says you don't need to you don't need to lead off with the Bible says. And I need to get into this so we can get through it and you'll see some of what I'm talking about in this sermon. And so what he's trying to do is, in my opinion, he's trying to circumvent people's uh, animosity toward or disbelief of the Bible and you know whether he believes or not everything that happens in the Old Testament because there, there, if you read enough about Andy Stanley there are statements that he makes where he, he, he alludes to at least 
that, hey, the Exodus narrative may not be 100% accurate where, you know, two to two to four million Jews crossed the Red Sea. You know, there, there's not archaeological evidence to prove those kinds of, not necessarily his exact words, but that's, that's, that's what seems to be behind some of this uh, reasoning. And when you get into, you know, evolution and, and versus creation and those kinds of things, you know, all those, all those key places in the scripture where people are challenged on their, in their faith as it relates to scripture. And so he's trying to circumvent that and say, Hey, we, we don't need to do that because they didn't have a quote, the Bible, as Andy Stanley says, uh, as he says in this sermon, you know, he got his Bible and it was mapped and wrapped. In other words, he had all 66 books of the Bible, just like you and I do. We have our Bible and it's all bound together. and It's got a nice cover. And, and the idea is, Hey, in the old Testament, when they were going through, uh, this, they didn't have that kind of, of document right and in the new testament they didn't have that kind of document at best they were kept in scrolls the old testament in in synagogues and in the temple places like that um so that in, in that sense it is true they didn't have a bible that was mapped and wrapped the way that we did but they still had access to the scripture uh, maybe not everybody like us. We're, we're among the most blessed people in the history of Christianity to have the access to God's word that we have. And shame on us for not taking advantage of the access that we have to God's word. Shame on us for being predominantly ignorant about God's word, right? Uh, the, majority, the average Christian, we're ignorant about the, the truths of God. We're ignorant about the theology and doctrine of scripture. And we have the most access to, to the Bible than any group of Christians in all of history. And so that's his idea. He's saying, hey, they didn't have that. What we need to do is we need to focus in on, on Jesus. We need to focus in on the person of Jesus. Uh, and again, maybe his red letter, <clears throat> what Jesus said, or what people said about Jesus in the Gospels, the four Gospels he brings out in here. But anyway, <clears throat> that's his idea. It's, it's almost, it's not, it's not red letter Christianity. Okay, I think it's uh, Tim or Tony Kampala that had the, the red letter Christianity movement that came, came out uh, a few years ago. It's not to that level, but it is very much like that ideology where we focus in on the four gospels and what Jesus taught in those four gospels and not just about his death, burial, and resurrection, but also about his life and what his life meant for us as he lived and, and modeled for us who God was and those kinds of things. So it's, it's almost a, a minimalistic idea of Christianity or a minimalistic evidence kind of thing. You know, don't, don't try to get people with this is what the Bible says with where you as a believer pre, have a presupposition that the Bible is true. It is God's word and those in the world don't have that right and so don't start there start with with the person jesus and the event of his death burial and resurrection and then work your way back into <clears throat> the bible and i'm not saying it's necessarily wrong for us to start with the person death burial and resurrection of jesus christ all i know is what paul did whenever paul uh, proclaimed the gospel of christ he would go into the synagogues first 
And the thing that he did in the synagogue is, guess what? He reasoned from what they would have understood as the scripture. You can call it the Bible, whatever. The, 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 the way that, that Jews would refer to uh, the Bible is the Tanakh. And the Tanakh is an acronym that um, is for the three major parts of the Hebrew Bible. The, the, the Torah, the law, uh, the, uh, I think it's Nevahim uh, and Ketavim, uh, those I think that's how you say those are. There's very close to those Hebrew words. Uh, one of them is is the prophets, and the other is the, is the wisdom literature. And how many times do we see in the New Testament where Jesus talks about the law and the prophets? Right now, I, I, you know, granted, he, he doesn't necessarily use that trifecta with the wisdom literature, but he, he talks about the law and the prophets in that way. So. They had this understanding of scripture, a canon of scripture. So it's really a little bit disingenuous to say that they didn't have, yeah, they didn't have it bound together all in one book. It was on scrolls, right? And they unrolled them and read them. Uh, the technology to do that wasn't necessarily there yet. Later on, Christians, I think, probably came up with binding books in a very similar way that you and I see books bound today. Uh, but anyway, that, that was the technology then. But don't you can't say they didn't have an understanding of Scripture and they didn't under, have an understanding of the canon of Scripture. As a matter of fact, the New Testament uh, church, the first century church, the apostles, whenever you read the New Testament as we have it today and you uh, read the quotes from the Old Testament, almost always, not every single one, but almost all of them come from the Greek Septuagint, which is the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament from Hebrew, what we call Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. That was the Bible of the first century church. They didn't call it Bible. They did call it scripture, right? So it's a little bit disingenuous to, to say that. And the second thing I would say, <clears throat> I don't know if it's the second thing or not. <laughs> the next thing that I would say is that when we, when we begin to do think like this, I think that we are underestimating the ability of God and the Holy Spirit. Because some of what, Andy, and I may never get to this, this, this sermon. You may just have to go listen to it. One of the things that Andy Stanley does, I think, is he puts the onus of salvation back on the person. It's all about how they feel about the things that they are hearing and seeing in the church. And it's those things that are driving them away. So it seems as though what he is, is saying, or at least implying, is that if we can give them the right information... If we can package the information in a better way, right? In, in other words, if, if, we can get, if we can get down to this minimal list of things and we can package this in the right way uh, and, and, and cut away all this other stuff, then they will have something that they can, they can grab hold to and they can, they can believe in and that may lure them to, to Christ. And again... I think a lot of that grows out of this idea of what is termed by theologians today, easy believism or decisional Christianity. You know, it's where we, where, where the onus for salvation is put on the person. 
you know that God does ninety nine or God does ninety nine percent of it, but you got that one you got that one percent, which is really the crucial percent, right? Uh, that 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 one percent makes it or breaks it, and so it puts it all on uh, the person, and it implies that it's not that they have a heart problem. It's not that they have a have an aver- natural aversion to the gospel and to God. It's not that they are rebellious or in rebellion uh, against God. As a matter of fact, he makes a statement in this sermon that says, hey, you know, one of the things that might drive people away is if, if that's the kind of Christianity that you uh, believe and, you know, and, and, and you think that Jesus is going to send my brother to hell and he's one of the best people I know, then I don't know if I can agree with that. And here's the problem. That, that's a that's a that's a misunderstood anthropology as it relates to humanity from a biblical perspective. Because even Jesus said, "There is none good but God." Right? And you remember the, the Jesus when he was talking with the rich young ruler. Hey, good teacher, uh, what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? And he says, "Hey, uh, you know why do you call me good? There's none good but God." And again, I don't have time to teach all that, but. You know, Jesus was at least saying to him, there's only one good being in this world, and that's God, and you're not good. I'm, Jesus is good because he is God, right? And that's the other aspect of that uh, that statement is, are you equating me with God, right? Do you, do you have that level of understanding that you're equating me with God because Jesus was God, and he was the only good human because he was the God-man, right? <clears throat> so... Uh, we as humanity, Paul, chapter 3, right? He works very hard to uh, to lay out the case that we are totally and utterly depraved. There's not one good thing in us. And our nature, by nature, we have an aversion to the gospel. By nature, we have an aversion to God. By nature, we want to sin. That's why John writes the way he does in John chapter 1. You know, Jesus came in, light came into the world. But what do men love? They love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. And so he, I think Andy Stanley has this provisional idea of salvation and that men are not necessarily as depraved as the Bible says they are depraved. And so I think that's, that is clouding his view in the reason he's doing what he's doing. Because Paul, again, Romans chapter 1, what does Paul say? Hey, God has made himself known. It's not that people don't know. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 and following. It's not that people don't know. God has made himself clearly known. Just by the creation around us, God has made himself known. So much so that men are without excuse. That men can't get saved by the knowledge they gain from God in creation. But they can stand before God condemned because they know that there is a God and they willfully reject the truth of God. They suppress the truth of God and they make a God of their own design. And so that's the problem, I think, that uh, is clouding the the judgment or the theology of Andy Stanley uh, because he didn't see men in that light. And I think he just thinks almost like a secular humanistic worldview if we will educate them enough, then they will gladly come to Christ. Well, no, they won't because the gospel is an offense, right? It's a rock of offense and it's a stumbling stone. Uh, and it takes, it takes the regenerative work of Christ to save a person. God has to enlighten us to the fact that we are, in fact, sinners and we need a savior. That's regeneration. If everybody, if everybody, if every one of us who have come to faith in Christ would evaluate our saving experience in Christ, 
all of us, I think, would at least have to admit that that happened to us. That at some point or another, God opened our eyes through his message from a preacher, through the word, right? God, in some way, through the person of the Holy Spirit, drew us to himself, opening our eyes to the fact that we were lost and wretched and undone, and that if we did not bow our knee to Christ, that we would die and go to hell and suffer his wrath for all of eternity. And the same thing has to happen to every human being. And we can package it however we want to package it. If, if, if God's word is not sufficient, there's nothing's going to be sufficient. As a matter of fact, one of the red letter portions of the scripture in Luke chapter 16, Jesus uh, tells this story about the rich man in Lazarus, right? And the rich man goes to hell, Hades, not because he's rich, but because he was not a follower of God. He was not a believer in God. He didn't, he didn't believe the promise of God. He was in rebellion against God. And Lazarus goes to the bosom of Abraham, paradise, I believe, uh, not because he was poor, but because he had faith in God. And the rich man in Hades looks up to Father Abraham and says to him, send Lazarus back. Raise him from the dead, send him back to my brothers and tell them uh, the truth of God. Tell them about what's going on here is the implication. And Abraham answers him and says, hey, they have the law and the prophets. Right? They have Moses. They have the prophets. Let them believe them. And, Abra and, the, and the rich man says to Abraham, but if if." If someone from the dead would come back, they would surely believe. And Abraham's reply is, if they don't believe Moses and the prophets, the law and the prophets, they will not believe someone coming back from the dead. And in that the reality of today? There are a number of people who come to faith in Christ. The world has been, you know, impacted by the gospel. But how many more millions of people today, because the greatest miracle of all miracles happened over 2,000 years ago when Christ died and he raised again, right? And still people don't believe. It has to be a work of God. It has to be a work of the Spirit in their life. We can package it in all the, the neat little ways. We can try to, we can try to as, as he says in this sermon, we can try to skin it down to the wood, right? Uh, take all the bark on all, all the other peripheral things off of it, as he would say, and bring it back to the essential. Well, that is the essential. That God revealed himself in Christ and he proved that Christ is who he says he is and that he did what he said he did by uh, raising him from the dead. And still people today reject that because it's not anything we can do in and of ourselves. It's God who has to move first in us to open our eyes to the truth of the gospel. All right. I, I probably have, have preached all of what I needed to preach about it but hey uh, we're gonna go, we're gonna we're gonna move headlong anyway uh, into this thing and, and again there's this phrase that he has in this this is part two now there's this phrase that he has in part two and in part one that he uses quite often it's called new and novel ideas uh, i hope that in the sermon he begins to identify us identify to us what these new and novel ideas are that he's talking about because he equates these new and novel ideas with the peripheral beliefs that differing uh, Christian traditions have to use his his language and he, he starts out by describing 
Christianity. This is at 416 in, in the timeline. He starts out by subscri- uh, describing Christianity in this way. There's one big building that's or one big house that's made up of only uh, living rooms. And all the living rooms have double doors that are facing to the outside. And what's happening is all of those religions are, are all of those all of those versions of Christianity, to use his idea, idea, all those versions of Christianity and all these living rooms have their own set of rules and, and, and guidelines and requirements. And, and in this, if you watch the video, you'll see on the screen, he's got a little drawing of a, of a, a big old mansion and it's got uh, different rooms, living rooms, and each one of them has a name of a particular, what he would call version of Christianity, orthodoxy, uh, <clears throat> reformed, uh, Catholic, and it just goes on, on down the list. And all of those, uh, he says, these are versions of, and he says, what's happening in Christianity is that each one of those versions are trying to invite you into their living room. And the only thing that they have in common, really, really a couple things. He'll, he'll talk about one. The one thing that all Christianity has had in common through the ages is really number one. The, of, in, in sermon number one, he talks about the first, first thing on the fundamental list is to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah, that he is uh, his anointed king. And so throughout Christian history, it says Christianity has held to that. But the other uh, aspect that they have in common is that they think that they're right and everybody else is wrong or at least misguided in some way. And I just thought that was funny. It's the only, I, only reason I bring this up is because in the series, what Andy Stanley is, going to try, is trying to do is introduce us to his living room. So he's saying to us, hey, here's how Christianity looks. There's a bunch of living rooms and a bunch of different versions of Christianity. They're, they're uh, you know, decorated with all these different aspects of, of faith and, and tradition and all that kind of stuff. And people try to convince you to come into their living room while he at the same time is trying to convince us to come into his living room because apparently his living room only has the fundamental things that we need in the living in the living room so it's it in its essence in essence is the best living room now he doesn't say all that but that's really the implication behind this isn't it <laughs> if, if you think about what was happening and then i don't know in in a matter of one sentence he used uh, new and novel things three times and talks about those new and novel things can be uh harmful and toxic and the, again this is just me trying to trying, trying to track with what his underlying principle is and i didn't ever read the quote i told you or the thing i told you i found but his idea is he's worried he's not worried about people who are christian already that that's that's in his mindset he's worried about the your daughters and your your granddaughters or your sons and your grandsons right and trying to reach them for uh the faith and that's why i think he's doing what he's doing and he's trying to cut down you know the the things that he thinks is a hindrance to them coming to christ when the real hindrance to people coming to Christ is their own depravity, right? Their own uh, fallen nature. And it takes God to regenerate them, to take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh in order to get them to the place to come to faith uh, in Christ. And Andy Stanley is missing that because of his provisional uh, theology. But anyway, he talks about these new and novel things. And he says, man, this goes all the way back to the, you know, first, second century, new and novel things begin to creep into the church and, and 
if he's talking about error, yeah. Has Christianity been riddled with error and heresy and, and bad theology? Yes. Is it still? Yes, it is. And that's why you and I need the Holy Spirit in our lives to lead us into all truth. So he uses that phrase quite often in there. Uh, let's see what I've got down here. Oh, we talked about in the seven seven. Uh, no, I don't have it. Seven fifty five is what I wrote down, but it's probably seven fifty one, seven fifty seven. Uh, yeah, right. and, and this is another phrase that's coming out in this sermon uh, that he uses uh, at least some semblance of this idea a couple times. He says, uh, you know, talking about different people's experience and why it is they may have left the church or deconstructed their faith or, or just had to step away from Christianity or whatever. Uh, they look in, they say, hey, something's not right there. I don't think it, I don't think that lines up with Jesus. If that's the kind of Christian, you know, I got to be, I don't want to be that kind of Christian. Uh, and, he, and he uses this term. He says the tone and the posture, the tone and the posture and the approach to life and the approach to relationships is just off. And again, I don't know where he's going with this. I'm going to listen to all the, I don't know how many sermons are going to be in this list. I don't know how long his list is. He not reveal that yet, but I'm going to keep listening to these things to see where he's going with this because it seems to me, and again, I, I don't want to uh, create a, you know, any false ideas about where he's headed, but this is where it seems to me, okay? And some of this may come, if I'm honest with you, it may come from some of the other things that I've read and seen about North Point Church and the issue with um, homosexuality and those kinds of things as it relates to that particular issue because later on he's talking going to talk about why important why this is so important because of what's happening in our culture today he uses those exact words and so what is happening in our culture today well the primary thing that's happening in our culture that's in our face today one is is something that's been around for a while and that's abortion right and i, I agree I, I would think that they would not want abortion to be <clears throat> you know legal without exception my position is i wish it was illegal period right because why why punish a child by taking its life who had nothing to do with the creation of its own life <clears throat> anyway uh and then the other things going on is the whole alphabet mafia movement the lgbt and uh in particular transgenderism at this moment is at the the, the the cutting edge of the acronym um, that is formulated by the alphabet mafia so i don't know if that's where he's going with this and where it's leading uh, i know i probably uh probably dr james white will probably do a video on this as well a lot, uh, have a, great, a far greater insights than i will i'm sure but uh you know i think he made that illusion that hey this i've heard this kind of stuff before and it seems like this may be the road he's going down but i, I don't know we got to listen and see where he's going but it's just interesting that he uses that kind of language uh let's see here what i have down here all right let's give on down let's give on down just see what i got highlighted so we can get on through what i got highlighted Okay, here's that phrase about the culture. Because when culture and, uh, and peripheral, when culture and peripheral are considered essential, that's at 9:38 in the timestamp. In other words, when new and novel ideas, so these new and novel ideas at least have something to do with the culture, uh, and these new and novel ideas and this cultural stuff becomes is peripheral in his opinion, uh, not essential. 
says, in other words, when new and novel ideas and harmful ideas get woven into the fabric of, of uh, certain threads and certain expressions of Christianity, when cultural and peripheral are considered essential Christianity, essential Christianity or the Christian faith, eventually it becomes untenable and unbelievable for some. So whatever he's talking about has to do with what's happening in our culture today. Uh, and it may not be the things that I said. It may all have to do with people who are leaving the church because, you know, they they get into this world and they either never were saved to start with. And that's another aspect of this idea of people leaving the church. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that every person who leaves a church is unsaved, okay? But if you talk about people who leave Christianity, right? Because some people can leave one church and go to another church. Sometimes there's a reason you need to leave one church and go to another church. And I think based on what I know about Andy Stanley and the direction he's going, if you're part of that church, you ought to leave and go to another church. Uh, Find you another living room, uh, as he would say. But it doesn't mean that every person who leaves one church and goes to another is not saved. But, you know, the Bible makes it very clear that those who do not remain in the Christian faith and leave the Christian faith. Now, that's not to say that people can, you know, get out of church and then later on come back. But those who ultimately leave and turn away from the faith, the Bible says they went out from us because they were not of us. And see, that's another problem with what Andy Stanley, the way he's going with this, I think, is that he's saying it's not because they're not saved, they don't have a right relationship with Christ, it's because they're not, they don't have the right information, and the right information will convince them that they can follow after Christ if we cut away all this other stuff. And so, anyway, that, that's just my, my opinion. Uh, and then where are we at? This is 14. Where did 13 go? Okay, here's 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 a bulk of what I want to read to you and, and talk to you about. And, and we may end it. We may end it there because it's really uh, the heart of. I'm gonna put my other part of it down. So we'll stick with what I'm about to read to you and make some final comments, and then then we'll be done. So at 13:30 in this uh, part number two. Uh, he, he begins this statement. He says, and here's why talking about, uh, so consequently, like this is 1300 or at 13 minutes. So consequently, like all of us, they got Jesus in their God box. So it's talking about the apostles who had Jesus in their God box and what he was saying there in the, in, in the context of the sermon was, Hey, Jesus has these 12 guys and they're, um, you know, he, he's about to die. He's about to go to the cross and they're not understanding this, right? They had, they did rightly. So rightly stated, they, they did not understand everything they needed to about why Jesus was about to have to suffer. You remember uh, Jesus asked Peter, Hey, who do you, who do, who do, he asked the disciples, who do men think that I am in part? And Andy Stanley uses that as part of his, uh, uh, fundamentalist in, in sermon number one, that's the key passage, right? And the first fundamental, is who do men say that I am? And right, and, and you know, some John the Baptist, Elijah, one of the prophets. And then he says, Who do you think that I am? Or who do you say that I am? And Peter answers up and says, uh, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, right? And he says, Hey, uh, blessed are you, uh, Simon Barjona, because hey, you didn't get that on your own. God gave that to you. My father gave that to you. And then later on, Jesus begins to talk to them about, Hey, the Son of Man's going to have to suffer and die. And Peter, the same one who says, this is who you are, says, hey, not on my watch, you're not, right? Not, not on my watch, you're not. 
And that's when Peter rebuked, or Jesus rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan, right? Because they didn't understand. They had the, they had the idea that Jesus was, the Messiah was going to come and be as political as he was spiritual and that he was going to, he was going to dethrone the Romans and set up the throne of David and, and put Israel back uh, on the map, so to speak. And in that way, they did not have the full picture. And in that way, yes, the old Testament made shadows of what Jesus and, you know, I wish I had time to go through all this, but that's another thing that he keeps pointing out this idea that the old Testament is just shadows, right? It's, it, 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 it didn't, you, you didn't understand everything you need to know about the old Testament. That's why we got to focus on the four gospels. And that's the heart of this sermon. We got to focus on the four gospels, right? Because we got four of them. We only had one story from another, from other places of the Bible. I think that's in this narrative. Let me just get to it. Okay. So that, that's the context in which he's about to say, and here's why uh, the primary confusion ar arises from the way that the Bible is traditionally talked about and taught. And is there confusion about how the Bible is traditionally talked about and taught? Yes, there is, because we don't always do the best job at teaching the Bible or talking about the Bible. So in that sense, he's right. There are problems with the way we go about doing it. And and he makes the statement, the, it's, the problem's not the Bible. It's about how we go about instructing people on the Bible or talking about the Bible. It arises, 1339 here, it arises from the confusion based on the way the Bible is tr uh, traditionally talked about, how people talk about the Bible. Uh, and then it's got present us with the Bible and the way they teach the Bible. Uh, so I think he's saying the problem is how people teach the Bible. <laughs> uh, the problem is not the Bible. I, I say amen to that. The problem is the way the Bible is presented, talked about, and oftentimes taught. So I hope in those two or three sentences he's made that same point, right? So he's driving that nail home. And here's the problem. Because of the way we receive our Bibles as children. If, any, uh, if many of you are like me, you got a Bible when you were a child. It was all mapped and wrapped, and this is God's Word. And so again, going back to the, to the idea that, hey, back then, they didn't have the Bible the way we have the Bible. It wasn't mapped and wrapped in a single volume. It was uh, in the Old Testament, it was several scrolls that were some together, some, you know, they were all rolled up and put in different places. It wasn't one big bound, but that was the technology of that era until things began to change technologically. Uh, new inventions of paper and binding and all that took place. So in that sense, he is right. They didn't have it in that way, the way we did, but you can't make the leap to say that they didn't understand a canon of scripture because they did understand a canon of scripture. They did understand what we would call an Old Testament or the Tanakh for uh, the, the, our Jewish friends or, you know, the law and the prophets and the wisdom writings. They did understand a scripture in that sense. So you, it, it, is, it is misleading to make that leap. Okay, and, and some people do that in other ways, right? If you, you talk to some of our Catholic friends, one of the arguments for them as far as why Scripture is not, is not uh, sola scriptura, why Scripture is not the sole authority for life and, and faith. Uh, it's the church, right? Sola Ecclesia. Now, they, they wouldn't say that, but um, that, that's their understanding of it. Because, hey, it's, they, they, their argument would be that, the, that we, didn't ha we don't have the canon of Scripture that we call the New Testament, they said, until the Council of the Church 
sat down and says, hey, this is the canon of scripture. And again, that's that's not in, that's not true. And I, I did a little bit about that on a previous podcast. So I won't rehash all of that. But the point is that the church was already beginning to accept the writings of the apostles very early on as scripture. And so, if, and if you want to carry this to the extreme about the red letters of Jesus, well, the first gospel, Mark, was probably not written until around AD 60, which was 30 years after Jesus. And so what did Paul mean when he told uh, Timothy to preach the word? Well, what word was he talking about? Well, he wasn't talking about the 26 books of the New Testament. He was talking about the Old Testament. That was the word that they had. That was the scripture and we know Peter was already saying in one of his epistles, he says, hey, well, he equated Paul's writings, some of Paul's writings that had come out, he, he equated them with scripture. And so, anyway, I, th I think it's very misleading to paint this kind of picture about the early church because they did have scripture. And as a matter of fact, they quoted from it quite extensively in the epistles um, that they wrote and that they used as they passed around through the churches. And even Jesus quoted from and validated the authority of Scripture in the Old Testament. All right, and then he goes on, um, verse, uh, this is, I say verse, at 14 minutes, three seconds. And the way it was presented to us, the way it was taught, we have a tendency to equalize this is so important. In other words, pay attention. Uh, to equalize the importance of everything in it. It's all from God, and I'd say amen, right? All scripture is God-breathed, right? Paul to Timothy, again. It is theonoustos. I think it's Paul to Timothy. Or it might have been Peter. Uh, all scripture is God-breathed. It's all from God. And here's what the, the jump that he's making, though. Therefore, it is all important. I'd say amen. It's all from God. It is all important. It is all equally important. And I would say amen. It's all from God. It's all important. And it's all equally important because God is the one who gave it to us. And consequently, the events recorded in the Gospels. So here's the problem with what he's just said, the way we received it, that it's all from God. It's all equally important. Consequently, the events recorded in the Gospels, the four gospel, the four accounts of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're going to talk about why we have four in a moment, the accounts of Jesus' life recorded in the Gospels get reduced to Bible stories. Now, that, that's a big issue right there, for me anyway, because the implication he just made in that statement was... <clears throat> That everything else we read in the Bible are merely Bible stories. And they ought to be treated as in, inferior to the four Gospels. That's where the minimalistic, the, the, the quasi-red letter aspect of this canon within a canon, as D.A. Carson would critique the red letter aspect of, of Christianity, trying to find a canon within the canon. Well, God given us a canon of Scripture. God 
spoke to us in the Old Testament. How many times you read in the Old Testament? You know, we read through the old we, we we read through the Old Testament or the Bible every year. And coming through the Old Testament, when you get into the prophets, how many times do you hear and the Lord has said, or thus saith the Lord? This is God speaking, and He's given His message to these human uh, prophets to share with Israel or and by proxy to all of us who read God's word. So was God not speaking in those days? Because listen, you got to understand the theology because he, he almost makes this false dichotomy and he brings us up later on with the idea of Jesus versus God. And, it, and do you have a different understanding or feeling when you hear the, the word God versus the word Jesus? And if so, then you've got some re-education to do and deconstructing to do and all the language he uses about that. And so there is this false dichotomy that is, is uh, built between God and Jesus as if they're not the same. Because God, the Father in the Old Testament, is the same God who inspires the New Testament, right? God the Son in the New Testament is the second person of the Godhead, equally divine, equally eternal. They're not at odds with one another, right? And God the Holy Spirit who inspires these to write is the third person of the Trinity, equally divine, equally eternal. And there, he's not at odds with the Father and the Son. These, in fact, to say that we need to focus in on as a primary note the Gospels and the red letters of Jesus Christ. And now he'll make a statement about when you look at those red letters, or if you got a Bible like me where you don't have red letters, right, uh, in them. And I, yet again, I, I'm not going to try to read between the lines on any of that stuff. But, you know, if we say that, then we're saying that the rest of the what God said to us is not equally as important it's what he said to us in Jesus Christ. Because I, I agree with Andy Stanley because the Bible says this, that Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God to humanity, right? The author of Hebrews in times past, you see, you, you, can't, you can't make this argument if you are a student of the Bible that, that Andy Stanley is trying to make. What does the author of Hebrews say in chapter one? In times past, God spoke to us in many ways, right? In various ways at various times through, right, the prophets, through, you know, angelic messengers. God spoke in many ways and in, in many times. But he says, in these last days, he has spoken to us through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus, and the whole, the whole argument in Hebrews is Jesus is the fulfillment of everything God had already been saying. And rightly so. Andy Stanley talks about Paul, and Paul's the only one that don't make the mistake, right, of, of bringing in all this other stuff in the Bible and equating it all the same. And I thought, how can you even make that statement, right? Because Paul, I think his theology underlines Hebrews, to be honest with you. That's my opinion. Um, but Paul would agree that Jesus is the fulfillment of everything that God was pointing to. But God, even Paul said, God had already proclaimed the gospel to Abraham. He'd proclaimed the gospel to Abraham. So it's 
in one sense, it is a new covenant in the blood of Jesus Christ, but it is the same decree that God had made before the foundation of the world that was being unfolded. And he had been telling us about that all throughout human history. And the culmination of that and the fulfillment of that was when God himself stepped into humanity and revealed himself in Christ Jesus. And not only does he reveal himself and the character of God and, and uh, the nature of God, but he fulfills the requirements of redemption by going to the cross of Calvary. And so that's what the Gospels are talking about. Again, to, to use D.A. Carson's argument against the red letter Christians, you, you, if you focus in on just that aspect of the Gospels, or even if you just narrow it down to the Gospels, then you and I need to understand there's a greater context of Scripture that validates for us that points us to that helps us understand exactly what was going on in the life and ministry of jesus christ and god doesn't want us to divorce ourselves from any of that that's why paul told timothy teach the word that's why jesus whenever he was on the road to emmaus he said he he went to the old testament beginning with moses and he showed them how all of that pointed to him and so, again, um, I don't know how you can make this leap and you can say that every aspect of God's word is not equally important because every bit of it is God's word. And so the words that Jesus spoke are the words of God because he is God. The, the words that God inspired Paul, Peter, James, John, Mark, Luke, <clears throat> The words that God inspired you, nor words that God inspired them to write, are equally God's word because all scripture is God-breathed. They are neustos. And so, uh, let's see here. We equate the stories, everything else stories. So, back up at 1434. Uh, so, the, the gospels get reduced as Bible stories, he says, at 1430-1435, which equates Jesus' story with everything else and all the other stories in the Bible. And I think, again, he's laying down, he's using language, <clears throat> he's using language in a very intentional way. Because he is making this distinction between what is written about Jesus as opposed to what is written about Noah and the ark, as opposed to what is written about the Israelites and the Exodus and the Red Sea, as opposed to what is written about David and Goliath, as though those things were Bible stories, right? Those are, are less significant Bible stories. And what we need to focus on is the more significant words and story and gospel message about Jesus Christ from the four gospels in particular. And in one sense, he is the culmination of the message. All of those things that we read about in the Old Testament are pointing to the culmination and bringing forth the culmination. <clears throat> the Exodus, how can you say the Exodus is not on par with what was happening in Jesus's life? Because the Exodus is the ultimate 
picture pointing to the Messiah and the necessity for the shedding of blood. Jesus is at the Passover. That's what Jesus was showing them. He was the fulfillment of that Passover meal and the, uh, the, that everything that was entailed about the Passover and, and the blood and, and God redeeming his, his people. So anyway, I don't know. I just don't know how you can honestly be a student of God's word and make that kind of of statement or those kinds of statements. Uh, he says, has it ever occurred to you uh, or have you ever thought about the fact we have one account of the flood? Well, not really. Maybe that's that God only wanted us to have that one account of the flood, right? Because Moses wrote it. God inspired Moses to write the account of the flood. And again, is that just a mere Bible story? What is the flood showing us about? It's showing us about the wickedness of this world. It's showing us about the wrath of God against sin. And it's showing us about the redemption of God in, in saving Noah and his family in the midst of the wrath that he was pouring out on this world. And so in all of that is painted this idea of the picture of the redeeming aspect of God and his character toward sin and his judgment against sin uh, as well, but also his love and his redemption uh, as he saved Noah and his family. Not to mention, it also carries forth uh, the, the lineage of Christ, which would ultimately come. And then he talks about, hey, we only have one story of David and Goliath. And then again, is that just merely a Bible story that has no, uh, is not as on par with what God did in Jesus? I get it. Jesus was the culmination of everything that God was pointing to. But David and Goliath is a story about God working through this one shepherd boy, one, to show the world that he is, in fact, God and that he has a chosen people and that he is the God of all of the nations. Not only that, though, what did you, what was David? David was the uh, a type of Christ. David uh, was that enthroned one that was going that was picturing the ultimate king that was going to come, who is Jesus Christ. So again, it's equally important for us to understand and have those stories that teach us how God was working out His redemptive history or His redemptive decree throughout history. Um, and then uh, he goes on, when it comes to the Old Testament in the history leading up to, the, to Jesus, when it comes to uh, Jesus, we have four accounts of the same person. And again, the four accounts of Jesus are there because four different people wrote them for four different reasons and really to pretty much four different audiences. Uh, and they had particular theological uh, reasonings and underpinnings when they wrote those letters. And why shouldn't we have four? Uh, I wish we had more because there was more that Jesus said and done. And that, uh, the, you know, I think it's John who says that the world wouldn't hold the books if they were written about what Jesus said and done. We have those four because that is what God wanted us to have about Jesus Christ. And again, we could go on and on and on about this issue, but the ultimate thing I think that he is saying to, or that he, where he is, he is, he is falling short. Maybe that's the best way to put it. I don't know. 
is I think he has a misunderstanding about uh, humanity as to our depravity. And I think that he has a misunderstanding or at least I wouldn't say a lack of trust in God because I, I think he would say that salvation is all of God. But the way he goes about evangelizing, salvation is mostly of us, right? But I think he has a misunderstood anthropology. I think he needs he believes that he needs to he needs to help God out in what uh, in reaching people in the sense that he needs to fashion or, or he needs to cut away a lot of stuff and just and circumvent the problem that people have with the Bible. And, you know, just to quote Spurgeon, one of my favorite passages in, in all the Bible is Romans chapter 10, verse 17. Romans chapter 10, verse 17, and again, it depends on your translation, Romans chapter 10, verse 17, is Paul says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God or the word of Christ. And so the idea is that we don't need more programs. All we need to do is hear God's word. The proclamation of God's word will ultimately point people to Jesus Christ. And then when people come to Christ, we don't stop there. We continue to proclaim God's word. We continue. What do you think Jesus was doing on the Sermon on the Mount? If you want to talk about red letter aspects of the Gospels, Jesus wasn't denying the uh, Old Testament. He wasn't redoing the Old Testament. As a matter of fact, Jesus was verifying and fortifying the the theology in in the in the moral code of god the ten commandments so jesus was saying hey if you want to know what it looks like to walk and live in covenant with god this is what it looks like and he explained to them the the ten commandments in a way that they had not heard before in a way that they had they had misunderstood and they were putting the onus on merely on the external and jesus was saying it's all about the internal and that leads to the the external and anyway i, I could go on and on about that just here's my warning and i encourage you to go listen to the sermons and um the next one should come out sometime after sunday but go listen to him. Make your own conclusions about that. I feel like that he's going down a dangerous road. Anytime you start stripping away aspects of the scripture as if they're not as important as other aspects of the scripture, then you're looking for, like D.A. Carson said, a canon within the canon. And God's given us the canon. It's all 66 books of what we call the Bible, the, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And he gave all of, uh, he gave all of it to us for a reason. And yes, Jesus is the culmination and everything that all of those scriptures are talking about are pointing to the same one, Jesus Christ. But all of it is relevant and we need all of it for our life and faith. And so anyway, I hope you will be a student of, of God's word so that when you hear things that are contrary to sound doctrine, that it will raise a flag in your, in your head and you'll be able to be uh, discerners of truth. Well, hope that was uh, helpful and beneficial to you. Um, and if I hear anything else in any of these that needs to be talked about, I'll I'll talk about them. But just remember, podcast, uh, RK Ministries, YouTube, uh, and Rumble. Go find me there. Like me, like it, share it, and subscribe to it. And until next time, may the Lord bless you and keep you and cause His face to shine upon you.
Hey, glad you could join us today on RK Ministries podcast, where each week we engage culture with biblical truth by sharing a message of truth and hope from a biblical perspective. Like the podcast, share the podcast, subscribe to the podcast, find us on Facebook and Twitter, and hope that you enjoy today as you join us on this episode of RK Ministries podcast.